0: Good morning, everybody. I uh, would like you to take your Bibles and open up to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Had a little asthma this week, so excuse me if I cough, but hopefully we'll get through okay. Passage we're looking at. This morning is really one of uh, the most remarkable events in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. It's recorded for us in the first 11 verses of Matthew's Gospel, uh, Chapter 4, but then also you'll find it in Mark and Luke, and I will reference those accounts uh, here and there to get a kind of a fuller picture of uh, what was happening. Let's just read the entire account in Matthew. This immediately follows the baptism of Jesus. Verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Martin Luther is credited with saying something about the preparation of preachers that has been quoted ever since. Luther said that preachers are made by three things. Number one, they're made by prayer. And that doesn't really surprise us. We know that. Secondly, he said that they are made by meditation. And again, that should be fairly obvious to us. But it was the third component that may surprise you. Luther said that it's prayer, meditation, and temptation that make a minister. And he spoke from his own personal experience with all three of those things. However, we also know this from what we read in Matthew 4 about the life of Jesus of Nazareth. We've just read the record of his temptation. And, of course, this has been an instructive passage for Christians Uh, Ever since it was written, you might have taken principles from it to use in your own efforts to overcome temptation in your life, and that certainly is appropriate to do so. This morning, I want to call your attention to the fact that this passage is not primarily given to us for our own personal instruction, but to record a necessary aspect of of the preparation of God's first minister, his own son. An old Puritan once said, God had but one son, and he made him a minister. And part of that making was through this temptation. I think that becomes obvious when you note the introductory facts that are included before the actual temptation uh, is recorded. And I want to call this to our attention as our first point uh, in order to highlight the fact that this tempting was part of Jesus being made a minister. And by the way, I had an an outline, but the printer ran out of ink. (laughs) So I apologize for that. You can jot some notes down uh, on a piece of paper. So I'm going to call this uh, first point the atmosphere for his temptation, because I'm using all A's today. So A is atmosphere. When it comes to the atmosphere, I want you to notice, first of all, the timing of this temptation. Matthew records that it followed right after his baptism. In verse 17 of chapter 3, he is baptized. The Father's voice is heard from heaven. And then Jesus was led up to be tempted. In Mark's gospel, he actually uses the word immediately. Immediately, the Spirit drove him to the wilderness to be tempted. Secondly, notice the place where this happened. It was in the wilderness, which means that no earthly eye saw what was going on. That clearly means it wasn't meant for anyone else's instruction at the time. In fact, nobody would have even known about it at all if the Holy Spirit didn't choose to tell us in the Gospels. But in addition to that, and very importantly, notice who initiated this series of temptations. In verse 1 again, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit to be tempted. It wasn't Jesus Himself who initiated this. It wasn't even Satan. It was the Holy Spirit. And again, uh, Mark's Gospel uses a very strong term When it says that Jesus was driven into the wilderness by the Spirit, another verse says he was impelled to go. So this came upon Jesus immediately after his baptism, when the one who filled him in that moment, the Holy Spirit, subsequently leads him into the wilderness for this very purpose. That's what it means when it says he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. It says it was for this purpose to be tempted by the devil. In other words, uh, the Spirit of God created the circumstance for this temptation. And then lastly, it is noteworthy that Satan himself was the tempter. Because as far as we know, this has not happened many times in human history. If we go by the biblical record... There are very few occasions when Satan himself emerges as the direct tempter of an individual person. Uh, Let me call these events to your attention because there's only four of them, and we can kind of use that to uh, compare and contrast uh, those events with what's happening here. First of all, in Zechariah 3, Satan accuses a high priest uh, named Joshua and he accuses him about his sinfulness before God. Now, secondly, you have uh, that situation recorded in the first two chapters of Job, when Satan accuses a righteous man and then he attacks him in numerous ways. Thirdly, in 1 Chronicles 21.1, Satan rose up and moved King David to number the people. And of course, finally, you have that scene in Genesis 3 when Satan takes the possession of a serpent and tempts our first parents. But apart from those times, you very rarely see this happening. We are tempted by other people, we are tempted by the spirit of this age or our culture. We're even assaulted demonically, but evidently, Occasionally in history, Satan himself gives direct attention to an individual. And what I'm pointing out is that whatever is going on at this point in our Lord's life, when it comes to the timing, immediately after the baptism, the place in the wilderness where there are no human witnesses, the initiator, the Holy Spirit himself, And the tempter, Satan, when it comes to all of these things, they really testify to the fact that the primary purpose for this has to do with the life of Jesus Christ Himself. So I want to preach a short three-part series to you on the temptations of the Messiah that prepared Him for ministry. And today, we're only going to deal with the first temptation, which was certainly a preparation for Him, because it's based on the identity of Jesus of Nazareth, his identity. I referred to him earlier as a man. And if any reader of the gospel has any question about the uniqueness of his humanity, well, they should be satisfied by now beyond all reasonable doubt that there really is something unusual about him, not only because they've read that he was conceived by a virgin in the earlier chapters, but also because of what was said about him in the very last verse of chapter 3. Remember at his baptism, the Father speaks from heaven, and he identifies Jesus of Nazareth as his son. Before that, even John the Baptist uh, doubted who the Messiah was, and we dealt with back then, but now it's clear Because there has been this divine acknowledgement that this 30-year-old man, born of a virgin, is indeed the Son of God. And with that in mind, point number two, look at how Jesus is approached and addressed by Satan in verse 3. He says, If you are the Son of God. Now, the word if suggests to us that his identification as God's son is still in doubt. But actually, the construction in the underlying text is very clear. There are various ways of expressing doubtfulness in the Greek text. And the construction that is used here, although we see it translated with the little word if, is not communicating a great uncertainty about that fact but it's actually conceding the point. If you want to translate it that way in English, you can use the word since. Since you are the Son of God. I mean, this is what the Father said at the baptism, which just happened, and Satan is now approaching him as if this is undoubtedly the case. I just want to pause for a moment to point out that this is very different from his approach to Joshua the high priest in Zechariah. Or even his approach to Job. In both of those cases, he is accusing those men. On the one hand, the accusation has to do with the man's sinfulness. And on the other hand, his accusation is a false motive. I mean, Job only serves you because of all the, the good that you've done to him. That's his motive. But in this case, the approach is through a concession. Since you are the son of God, since that's the case, I'm now going to tempt you with something that is entirely within the range of your power. That's his approach of temptation. Now, thirdly, look at the actual appeal of the first temptation. Since you are the son of God, command that these stones and there is a clear appeal to his deity. Command that these stones, I mean, nobody commands rocks except God, right? So, since you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. They can actually summarize the diabolical genius of this statement by saying that here you have an appeal to exercise his deity, command the stones in order to satisfy the needs of His humanity that they become bread. It is an appeal to His deity to satisfy the needs of His humanity. Now let's enlarge on this for just a moment. You have a test that is given to Jesus regarding His physical nature because He has one. And like ours, it depends upon the material creation. It must eat, it must drink. I mean, when he took flesh, he made himself like every one of us, and we must eat, we must drink, or we die. Now, they've done laboratory testing on volunteers to see how much fasting a human body can endure. Uh, In a controlled environment, adult volunteers who fasted 30 to 40 days experienced a weight loss of over 25%. And by the way, I would never volunteer for this. Their muscle mass shrank. Their bones protruded. Their skin became thin and dry. Their hair dried and easily fell out. Their heart size and cardiac output was reduced. Their pulse slowed. Their blood pressure fell. Their respiratory rate decreased, and their work capacity was greatly reduced because of muscle destruction. Apathy and irritability increased. and That happens when you donate for a couple of hours, right? However, they said the intellect remained clear. Well, this is precisely the condition into which the Holy Spirit directed Jesus of Nazareth. The other gospels indicate that he was being tempted over that whole period of 40 days, and it was only at the end of that time, at his physical weakest, when these three were specifically initiated. Look at the way it's put in Matthew 1, then, or Matthew 4, verse 1. Again, Jesus uh, was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. When he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward, he was hungry. I guess so. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, since you are the Son of God, exercise your deity to satisfy the needs of your humanity. Now, I have a question for you. What's wrong with that? What is the sin in taking what you have at your disposal in order to meet your fundamental human needs? How can there be anything wrong with Jesus doing that? In fact, on a purely pragmatic level, it actually makes sense. I mean, you're hungry. you got the power. Go ahead and make some food. In other words, if we didn't have the Lord's answer to that temptation in the text, we might never really know what was wrong with the temptation. But thankfully, we do have the reply and the explanation right out of the mouth of the one being tempted. So I want to take you now, lastly, to Jesus' answer in verse 4. But He answered and said, it is written. Now, let's note this fact, first of all, that Jesus' reply is not His personal view. Now, of course, He could have answered it personally, but He didn't. He answered in terms of Scripture from Deuteronomy 8.3, which really adds strength to the answer. In other words, when a person answers with the words of God, it's as if he has stepped back and he's inserted God between himself and the tempter, and there's tremendous strength in doing that. So having made that observation, let's turn now to Deuteronomy 8. Because although this quotation does seem appropriate for the temptation, there is nevertheless a great deal more light that is shed upon it when you go back to the original context of the statement. Now in this passage, Deuteronomy 8, the nation is on the threshold of entering the promised land. Uh, So, you know, the 40 years they've spent in the wilderness are over. And just before leading these people into the promised land, God is uh, gathering them and he's re educating them in all of the instruction they received from Moses while rehearsing for them some of the experiences that they've had over the past four decades. Well, in the midst of all that, God says to them in verse 2 And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness. To humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that a man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds. From the mouth of the Lord. So, the context of that quotation really, uh, as you can see, was God's testing of a whole nation. And He's testing them precisely in this regard their physical needs. I mean, occasionally He put them in circumstances where those needs were not met. Do we understand that? Do we understand that you can be in the center of God's will, and have nothing to eat. And this is a test. God has done it before. He did it until the children cried for bread. He's brought His people, and at least in one case, an entire nation, to the extremity of great physical need in order to test them to see what was in their heart and whether or not they would obey his commands in the face of desperate hunger. So Jesus then extracts a statement from that passage that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord, because that statement encapsulates the lesson that God was teaching his people in the wilderness. It isn't that human beings don't need bread. I mean, that's not the point. The point is that even the getting of their bread must be in submission to God's commands. In other words, the the point isn't simply, hey, you don't live by bread, you live by obedience, but that the obtaining of your needed bread must be in obedience to God. Why? Well, because God controls the timing and the means by which even life's necessities are gained. Our earthly life and its sustenance must be submissively left in God's own control. I mean, He will feed you in His timing. And that lesson was going to be critical for these people to learn once they entered into the promised land. Why? I mean, why did God make them go through all of that? Well, look at what else it says in chapter 8. Look at verse 7. This is what God knew about the future. But the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of waters. Now think about that. You've been in the wilderness your whole life. You know nothing of this of fountains and springs that flow out of valleys and and hills. And, you know, when Moses said that, you know, their minds uh, must have just imagined and been filled with these images of all that they longed for. Uh, Verse 8, a land of wheat and barley. Of vines and fig trees and pomegranates and they're licking their lips and Verse 9, a land in which you'll eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing. But verse 10, when you've eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which He has given you. And beware, though, that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments, His judgments. Otherwise, this could happen. Verse 12, when you have eaten and are full, In verse 13, when your herds and flocks multiply, in verse 14, your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord who, verse 15, led you through that great and terrible wilderness, Into the verse, who brought water for you out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, that He might humble you and that He might test you to do you good in the end. You see, that deprivation in the wilderness was their preparation for plenty. Human beings simply cannot handle plenty. Uh, Even God's people are prone to forget where it all comes from. We know this in the West, right? Uh, We get fat and we start to neglect obedience to the will of God. And so for 40 years, the Lord taught them and taught them to be like weaned children. No water, no bread, don't complain, wait for it. And when in my perfect will and appointment I feed you and give you water and shelter you, you will have learned to be dependent completely on me and obedience to my word. That obedience is the primary thing that God is interested in. It's the same kind of thing that Susanna Wesley did with her children. She wrote about the secrets of child rearing. She raised, I think it was 21 kids. Imagine that. She's Perpetually pregnant for 25 years. And uh, one of the first secrets she said, initially she said, you really have to break the child's will. Don't break their spirit, but break their will because they have to learn whose word is law. Well, God was teaching these people that very lesson in the wilderness. Now go back to Matthew 4. <clears throat> Jesus takes <clears throat> this point and applies it to Himself. Just like us, the people He came to save, He must live in obedience to God, even when it comes to obtaining the most basic of human needs. He must live in obedience to God. That's the lesson in a nutshell. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That was true for the Israelites who never quite got the lesson. It was true for the Messiah who resisted the temptation to fail as His ancient ancestors had done. And in many ways, it's true for us as well. We must live in obedience to God, even when it comes to obtaining those fundamental human needs in my life. If I can put it very simply, it's not right for you to steal from the supermarket because you have no food in the cupboards. It's not right for you to cheat on your taxes or you won't be able to make the mortgage payment for the month. It's not right for you to take advantage of your employer or you won't be able to fill the car with fuel. Why? Because man shall not live on the principle that his basic needs are the number one priority in his life. But man shall put the premium on obedience to God even when you're starving. And there's no clothing, and no shelter, and no warmth. Because even in those circumstances, it's coming from God. God is teaching you. And He demands that you learn obedience to Him, even when the chips are way down. I want to come back to that application in connection with our temptations in a moment. But first, I want to take just a little bit of a different direction in the message. And I want to turn to the case of Jesus of Nazareth because there is a vast theology that underlies the simplicity of that principle, and that's what I want to look at for a moment. As I said earlier, the primary message here involves His temptation and not ours. And if we look at the theological foundations underneath, I think this is where the greater blessing and instruction comes for us this morning. So I want to give to you The path of Jesus' obedience in the face of temptation in 11 points. (laughs) It's like 11 steps, one building on the other, so hang on. Number one, when the Messiah came, He came, Galatians 4.4, made of a woman, made under the law. Now that is foundational for what's going on in the wilderness. He came made of a woman, part of humanity, but he was human under the law. Number two, look at Matthew 2. I want to call your attention to a passage we've looked at before, but it becomes highly significant to what's going on in the life of Jesus now. You may recall that Matthew 2 is built on the fulfillment of four Old Testament passages that refer to the geography of the Messiah. Remember that? Uh, the first was that he was born in Bethlehem. But second was that he left the land and he went down where? Right, into Egypt. Uh, and verse 15 is the fulfillment. It says it's a fulfillment of a statement in Hosea. The statement was, out of Egypt I called my son. When you look at the original context in Hosea, it initially refers to the nation of Israel, And their exodus out of Egypt, but then it's also applied by the Holy Spirit to Jesus, who's an Israelite, whose individual circumstances paralleled the nation from which he came. Right? So he's made of a woman, made under the law, and just like the nation that he came to represent and free, he's brought up out of Egypt. Remember, he fled to Egypt with his family. He's brought up out of Egypt. Now, where does he go? Into the wilderness. Uh, When he's on the threshold of earthly ministry, he's driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. Actually, that's number four, sorry. Number three is where he first identifies himself with his people at his baptism. Remember the words, thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Remember that? I think it was our last message. So those people standing on the banks watching Jesus going to the waters, well, they're the guilty ones. But he is accepting their baptism of repentance. I mean, he's got no sin to confess. John himself feels totally unworthy to lay his hands on this person with this kind of baptism. But hey, John, permit it to be so. Thus it is fitting for us, for John and myself, to fulfill all righteousness in this regard. So he formally identifies himself with his people at his baptism. Immediately after that, he's driven into the wilderness by the Spirit of God. And now, number five, he must live within the limits of his humanity. He must. I mean, that's the whole point of his total identification with us. And living righteously on our behalf. Well, humans, well, we cannot create bread. Human beings must sow, plow, and reap, and you know, we've got to depend on God's provision. So if Jesus were to feed himself by a direct miracle, what's he doing? He's lifting himself out of the sphere of our humanity, and he ceases to identify with us in our need. Now turn to Philippians 2 so you can see the deeper problem with that. It's a passage Pastor Brian read this morning. So glad you read that, Pastor Brian. Uh, this, is, this has the words that are literally translated as emptied himself. Other versions... Smooth it over a bit. The King James, New King James, made himself of no reputation. ESV takes the literal translation when it says he emptied himself. Let's read from verse 6. All right, here's the deeper eternal answer to this. Who, all right, although being in the form of God, says he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He did not regard that equality. Uh, or position with God, something to be grasped, something to clutch to himself. And because he didn't clutch that position to himself, verse 11, he made himself of no reputation. Literally, he emptied himself. He emptied himself of what? Well, that's created all kinds of problems in the history of theology, right? But the best understanding of this is that he emptied himself of the independent exercise of His deity. That's number six on our list. Let me say that again. It's critical. Jesus did not empty Himself of deity when He became a man. I mean, here here He is out in the wilderness. Is He still God or not? Yes or no? Of course He is. He did not empty Himself of His deity, but He did empty Himself of any independent exercise of that deity. Instead, it says that He took the form of a bondservant. Now that raises a question. Whose servant was He? Who was calling the shots when He did exercise uh, His deity on earth, when He performed all those miracles? Well, when we looked at His baptism, we traced the words from the Father, this is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, remember that through respect to the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, chapter 42, which is the first of five servant passages in, this book, in that book. That's where God the Father looks far ahead to someone who's going to come. He'll be anointed by the Holy Spirit and he'll be my servant. So being in the form of God, he did not take the position that he has to clutch, this position of equality, and the exercise of his deity to himself, but he is prepared to empty himself of the independent exercise of that deity, and he made himself Jehovah's bond servant. That's number seven. So when the father says, This is my beloved son, I'm well pleased with him, he's declaring in that passage because of the prophecy that Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of those servant passages. And then immediately, The Spirit of God drives him into the wilderness and for 40 days he doesn't eat. Then Satan comes along and says, well, since you're the Son of God, that's been established, all right, exercise your deity now to satisfy the needs of your starving humanity. But don't you see, out there in the wilderness is the servant of Jehovah. He cannot do that without contradicting the whole plan set up in eternity past. No. If he's going to be fed at all, it has to be in direct obedience to the will of God the Father. He cannot act independently. It is written, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That was the lesson God was teaching Israel in the wilderness. And that brings us now to number eight, In Matthew 4, 2, he was hungry. He was permitted to hunger just like Israel. So let's follow the logic so far. Let's just go back and review those points. Number one, he comes made of a woman, made under the law. Human. Number two, like Israel, he's God's son delivered out of Egypt. Number three, he formally identifies himself with those people at his baptism. Number four, he's led out into the wilderness. Number five, he's now out there living within the limits of his humanity. Number six, that's because he relinquished the voluntary exercise of his deity. And number seven, he's there as the servant of Jehovah. So number eight, God's servant is allowed to hunger, just like Israel was allowed to hunger, just like they were brought to the edge of Terrible hunger. So the Lord went without food for 40 days before this temptation occurred. 40 years in the wilderness, 40 days. Interesting parallel. And that brings me to this. Number nine, he, like Israel and like us, must learn obedience by what he suffers. Hebrews 5.8 says that though he was a son Yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And so number 10, he must live in perfect dependence upon deity. He must learn that to the extreme by being submissive even under great suffering if that suffering is for obedience sake. And then while he suffers, he's tempted. And that brings me to this number 11 in that weak moment. He must do exactly what you and I must do in such circumstances. He must live by obedience through the temptation. Do you get all of those 11 points? That makes sense to you. I hope so. Well now I want to apply it. There's a wonderful lesson for us here, I think, in, especially in those areas where the Bible does not give us direct prohibitions. We've dealt with Christian liberty in the past, those areas where the Bible doesn't explicitly command or prohibit certain behaviors. We have freedom in some of these areas. But here's a lesson for us, I think, that is basically a parallel to our Lord's circumstances. When we find ourselves placed in a particular situation by the direction of God, We must not then take things into our own hands. Now, of course, we do and we have, and that's really where our sin messes things up. We wanted to be loved or to have someone to love, and so we started a relationship with a non Christian. We wanted a a family, so we lowered our standards for marriage. We needed to pay our bills. We needed a reliable car. We wanted opportunities for our children. We wanted to be healthy again. We needed the necessities of life. And believe me, I speak from a wealth of failures in my own life. But how often do we all fail to give God the glory by rushing ahead in His timing or leaving His place of appointment or forsaking our calling? or compromising in order to obtain something, taking things into our own hands. You see, God allowed us to hunger. He allowed us to be in need for a while, to feel the pain of it all. I mean, we just assumed He wasn't listening to our prayers. We thought He wasn't going to provide. I mean, something had to be done. I got to do it. I got to cut corners to make it happen because God clearly is not interested. And we totally mess it up. Say, well, how serious is this really? Well, when Israel did it, God said, I was grieved. They do always err in their hearts. They have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. So beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. In departing from the living God, but exalt one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin as it happened to Israel in the wilderness. Hebrews 3:12 and 13. Learn the lesson from Israel as a negative example, and then from the life of our Lord as a positive example of living in obedience to God's timing and God's way and God's will, even when things are looking pretty bleak. When it comes to your own temptations in this area, Hebrews 4 assures us that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in how many points tempted? was in all points tempted as we are, including in the most fundamental of human needs. So does Jesus care when you've tried and you've failed to resist some strong temptation? Does he care when your days are weary and your long nights dreary as the the song goes? Yes, your Savior cares. And thank God that He can do something about it because the Lord Jesus Christ did not give in. He lived a life of full obedience. Obedience that is credited to us upon the simple condition of our faith in Christ. So all of my failings when tempted in this way to satisfy my human needs apart from the direct provision of God, All of my failures have been provided for by Jesus' bloody sacrifice. God said to Israel, I swore to them in my wrath, they they will not enter into my rest. But don't you see? Here's the blessing God took that wrath for you and me. And he provided an unblemished righteousness in exchange for my filthy rags. So that I can be in a service like this and stand confidently before God and know that I'm accepted in the Beloved who identified Himself with sinners and was tempted to the extreme but emerged sinless, spotless, undefiled, entirely apart from the category of sinners. And praise God He did it so that you and I might be received and accepted by God. Do you know him? Is he yours this morning? Let's bow together for prayer. Heavenly Father, how thankful we are for the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, the substitutionary life. And praise God, a substitutionary death. So we praise you and thank you this morning. For all that the Lord Jesus did, that He did resist the temptation. He identified with us, yet without sin. So, Father, help us in this life as we face temptations. May we not do anything outside of Your will for us, but embrace even those difficult times. Knowing that You are teaching us something. You are leading us along like little children. And all we need to do is take your hand and be submissive to that and trust in you. Because we know, Father, from your word that you love us and you will provide for us. And we thank you that Jesus cares because we ask it in his name. Amen.